0: The first reading comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, from heaven, there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. I don't often read to music, but that's fine. (laughs) <laughs> no 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 singing. Um divided tongues as of fire appeared among them and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the holy spirit and began to speak in other languages as the spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved.
1: Thank you, Margaret. Did you know that that um, story of Pentecost is enshrined in one of our stained glass windows? Uh, I think it is uh, that one there, the, the, the one to the left um, on that side. Uh, then Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice. Uh, if you've never really looked at our stained glass windows, there are four biblical New Testament preachers. We have John the Baptist, Jesus, Peter and Paul. And in the middle, you have me. Um, but there's uh, <laughs> no pressure there. But I just, I think that's lovely that we've got the Pentecost sermon enshrined in one of our stained glass windows.
0: First of these readings is from Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21. Then I move on to Philippians. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom, and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus.
1: May the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts Be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, this morning, I want to start by introducing you to my great-grandfather. Those of you who are friends with me on Facebook will have already seen this photo, but I'm not going to impose it on you for very long. Uh, This is Messenger Sergeant Major William Gwynne Woodman. So if we could have the first of the slides, please. Thank you. Um, Just over 70 years ago, um, in February 1952, he was part of the Guard of Honour, who stood vigil over the late King George VI in Westminster Hall. This is a a postcard on the left, um, but he is one of the guards sort of standing there. um, And on the right, you've got a little letter Um, From signed by Elizabeth R, thanking him for his service at her late father's um, memorial. And then 69 years ago, we can have the next slide now, please. He was present at the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. And he can be seen in this photo in full dress uniform, um, guarding the processional exit of the newly crowned Queen as she walked down the aisle at Westminster Abbey. Um, If you're struggling to make him out, next slide please, Uh, there he is outlined in red. His obituary reads, completed 37 years in the Queen's bodyguard of the Yeoman of the Guard, reaching the position of Senior Messenger Sergeant Major. Was invested with the silver medal of the Royal Victorian Order in the New Year's Honours List of 1959. Has completed more than 65 years of continuous military service, was a member of the Guard of Honour of the Queen Victoria Jubilee, was at the relief of Mafeking, has attended every royal wedding, funeral and coronation, as well as other state occasions since 1921 until the end of 1959. And he died on the 8th of March, 1960 military interment at Elmer's End Cemetery with pallbearers, piper and drummers from the Scots Guard Regiment. Well I tell you this story from my family history. Andrea can we just advance onto the blank for a moment but leave the PowerPoint showing. I tell you this story from my family history because I do think it matters that we know our history. The stories that shape us Both individually, as in the case of me growing up, knowing that story, but the stories that shape us also corporately in our life together, the stories that have shaped you, the stories that shape us. These stories are important and we understand ourselves better if we understand the past from which we have come and in many ways the celebration of the Jubilee this weekend has involved a lot of looking back, of learning things about our corporate history, some of it very joyful, some of it perhaps something that we might want to own as problematic. I'm sure there are some of us here today who can remember the coronation of Elizabeth. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands but I'm I'm going to be pretty confident that there are are at least some of us here. Um, Well a question for you Do you know what the oldest item in the crown jewels is? Does anybody know what the oldest item in the crown jewels is? Anybody want to take a guess? No guesses? Cullen and diamond. Kind of. I mean, clearly as a diamond, it is quite old. But its, its setting is more recent. The oldest, perhaps actually the oldest man-made item in the crown jewels. Okay, let's put people out to their misery. Andrea, can we have the next slide? It is the coronation spoon. This little kind of... Um, well, there's kind of, I can't work out whether it's um, gold plate or solid gold, so there are different, uh, different opinions about that one. Um, it dates from the 12th century. It was probably originally created for mixing water and wine, but it's been used to anoint monarchs with oil at their coronation since the time of James I in the early 17th century. So these days, the Archbishop of Canterbury would dip two fingers in the two kind of um, sides of the spoon. It's got like a little spine that runs down the middle of it to make two troughs and would then use that to mark the forehead of the new monarch, Uh, so that was happening um, this weekend 69 years ago was the last time uh, that was used for the coronation. Okay we can uh, lose the powerpoint now, thanks Andrea. Well it's this idea of anointing that I want us to focus on for a moment this morning um, as we explore something of the origin and symbolism of this practice In the Hebrew Bible, uh, called in Christian circles often the Old Testament, anointing with oil was an act of commissioning, an act of ordination, of setting somebody aside for a particular role. So priests were anointed for their ministry, and we see that in Exodus, as were the sacred items that the priests would use. Uh, There's an anointing of the tabernacle at one point in Exodus 30. Prophets similarly were anointed and also significantly kings, as we find in the story of the prophet Samuel, choosing the young David from amongst Jesse's sons. I'm just going to read a couple of verses from 1 Samuel 16 for you. Now, David was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, rise and anoint him, for he is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Well, it's good to know, isn't it, that uh, having beautiful eyes and being handsome is one of the key criteria for kingship. Well, here in this passage, we find something significant occurring, which is that the anointing is not only the moment of commissioning for kingship, It is also the moment that the spirit of God comes upon David. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forwards. The act of anointing, of sanctification, of setting aside of a person for a particular role, allowed God's spirit to take shape in that person's life. In a new way. Within the Jewish tradition, the king and the high priest were sometimes spoken of as being uh, the anointed ones. And the Hebrew for anointed one, does anybody know what that is? Messiah, yeah. It's the where we get our word Messiah from. Messiah means anointed one. Well, as Israel's fortunes faded with successive invasions from the Assyrians to the Babylonians to the Greeks to the Romans, the power and prestige of their kings and priests diminished. And there arose within Israel a hope that one day a new Messiah, a new anointed one, would come and restore the nation's fortunes. want to get your head around this it's a myth not dissimilar to the Arthurian myth of England where nationalistic hopes and religious ideology combine to create a kind of cultural memory of a long-lost golden courtly age and of course within the Arthurian myth there is this corresponding hope that in our nation's hour of greatest need the great king of old will return and reestablish his kingdom. Well, for the ancient Jews, their hopes of a restoration for their nation were similarly pinned on a Messiah who would combine both kingship and priesthood. They were longing for a son of David who would embody all their religious and political aspirations, overthrowing the oppressors, restoring the borders of their kingdom, and renewing the religious life of their nation. This is the context, then, that frames the stories of Jesus, and we can see how all these come together in the moment of Jesus commissioning that we had read to us a few moments ago from Luke's Gospel. At his baptism in the River Jordan, the Gospel writers record the Spirit of God descending on Jesus in the form of a dove. And at the beginning of his public ministry in the synagogue at Nazareth, Jesus evoked the prophecy of Isaiah to interpret this descent of the Spirit on him as his own moment of anointing. Jesus said that he was anointed by the Spirit of God. Not by oil, from the priest's horn of oil, but anointed by the Spirit. And he quoted from the prophet Isaiah. Some 500 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah had proclaimed a message of hope to those returning from the Babylonian exile, The prophet had spoken of himself as a prophet of good news, saying, and a quote here from Isaiah 61, The Spirit of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And it is precisely this passage which Jesus reads from and applies to himself at the beginning of his own ministry. Remember, I said it's important for us to understand history if we're to understand what's happening in the present. Well, if we're to understand what's going on in the claim that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, we need to understand the origins of what it means to speak of someone as the anointed one within Judaism. But there's something else going on here as well, and it's this idea of jubilee. You see, the Isaiah quote about being anointed by the Spirit of the Lord is not one which lends itself, really, to either political aspiration or religious restoration. The Isaiah quote isn't a mandate for a new son of David to assume military authority and overthrow the oppressors, and it isn't a mandate for a new high priest to emerge who will reintegrate the faith at the highest levels of the state. Rather, the Isaiah quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, makes it clear that the anointing of the Spirit is an anointing for works of service, for bringing good news to the oppressed, for healing the brokenhearted, for bringing liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners the anointing of the Spirit as Isaiah articulated it to those returning from exile in Babylon and as Jesus articulated it, quoting Isaiah in his own ministry, it is an anointing to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And here we find ourselves face to face with the concept of jubilee. Gosh, you couldn't write it, could you, this weekend? This weekend's Jubilee celebrations are, of course, marking the 70th anniversary of the Queen's Accession. But did you know that the concept of Jubilee, which means celebration, is found in the pages of the Hebrew Bible? Tim Jones, friend and former member of Bloomsbury, has written a new article on Jubilee, which you can see published this week on the website christianity.org.uk, for which I'm a trustee and incoming chair. And I'm going to let Tim take up the story for a moment, and before you correct me and say he's Tim Griffiths, he's Tim Griffiths personally, he's Tim Jones professionally. (laughs) He writes, a Jubilee year in the Old Testament and Jewish tradition." was a time when the fields were left fallow, debts cancelled and slaves set free, and land was returned to its owners. You can read more about it in Deuteronomy 15 and Leviticus 25. Jubilees were supposed to happen following seven sets of seven years, so probably in the 50th year. And this periodic resetting of land and wealth was to ensure that inequalities did not persist over time. Tim continues, all the reasons to celebrate a jubilee were linked. If a peasant's crops failed, then they had to borrow from the rich to get by and then exploit the land to attempt to pay the debt. If the debts could not be paid, the lender could take possession of the land and then take the borrower and their family into slavery. So times of crisis, such as drought, caused huge injustice and increased inequality in society, and Jubilee righted these wrongs. Freeing slaves, cancelling debts, returning the land and giving it time to recover from over-exploitation. Well, thank you to Tim for that explanation. And I just want to say, my goodness, don't we need a jubilee? We've been through a time of national crisis with the pandemic, global crisis with the pandemic. We're facing a huge cost of living crisis. The disparity between the rich and the poor continues to grow. We need a jubilee. All of this is the background to Jesus' use of Isaiah's prophecy. As he declared himself anointed by God's spirit to proclaim the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favour. This was not a vision for fulfilment of nationalistic hopes. I mean, you know, I like to wave a Union Jack as much as the next person. But that is not what this Jubilee vision is about. Nor was it a vision about the resurgence of religious power. I mean don't get me wrong, I like our cathedrals as much as the next person but that's not what it's about either. Rather it is a vision of a world remade where the poor and vulnerable are prioritised, where the excluded are included, where wealth and land and ownership are for the benefit of the many, not just the few. And where natural resources are respected rather than exploited, the land gets its rest at a time of jubilee. It is significant that Jesus, in his own ministry, never speaks of himself using either the phrase son of David or son of God. He does not see himself as the fulfilment of the military political aspirations of David or the priestly aspirations of uh, the Aaronic priesthood. Rather, it was always others. If you go through the Gospels, it's always others who are trying to use these titles of Jesus. And Jesus consistently resisted them with their militaristic and messianic overtones. You know how Jesus spoke about himself, son of man, son of humans. That is how Jesus articulated his self-understanding of his mission. He is one of the people. A man quite literally of the people, not an elite leader, not a military man or a revolutionary activist or a high ranking priestly official rising to the top of the tree. Jesus was not, it seems, the Messiah anointed to fulfill the dreams of the Jewish nationalists to rebuild the kingdom of Israel in their time. Rather, he was the Messiah anointed to proclaim the year of Jubilee to establish the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, to quote the prayer that he taught his disciples. And those who would follow Jesus would, I think, do well to reflect on his reframing of what it means to be anointed as the Messiah. Too easily we are seduced by memories of better days long gone, for which we yearn to return. We hear it in phrases like, this used to be a Christian country, you know. And on this weekend, particularly, I think we hear it in the way some Christians are making so much of the faith of our monarch. Now, please don't get me wrong here. I am a huge admirer of Elizabeth Windsor. And everything I have read indicates that she has a sincere and devout faith she is our sister in christ and has lived a long and faithful life and for that i give thanks to god but i rejoice in her faith as i rejoice in the faith of anyone who has offered a life of long service to god do you remember in the chronicles of narnia by the great writer c.s lewis men and women are described as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. Titles which deliberately evoke Jesus's description of himself as the son of man. And I believe that in Christ, we are called to resist narratives of exceptionalism for people or countries. We are called to resist dreams of nationalism and militarism. We are called to resist all messianic hopes of restoration. Rather, we are called to attend to the poor and the vulnerable, to make real the vision of jubilee. And for this, we too are anointed. Early in Luke's gospel, John the Baptist is doing his baptising thing. And Luke tells us in chapter three, as the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah. He's in that window up there. John answered all of them by saying, I baptise you with water. But one who is more powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so we find ourselves at Pentecost, at the birthday of the church. The story of Pentecost from the early chapters of Acts shows us that the anointing of baptism is the gift of the Spirit, and that this is for us as it was for Jesus. I am not a cessationist with regards to the work of the Spirit in the people of Christ. We are anointed with the same Spirit as was Jesus, and for the same reason, and we are similarly gifted with the gifts of the Spirit. But the purpose is jubilee at pentecost the nature of the kingdom of god was revealed as the barriers which divided people from one another barriers of privilege language and identity were broken down by the anointing of the holy spirit but this is more than an idealistic vision of human unity to be fulfilled in the hereafter The early chapters of Acts are full of stories of people working in concrete terms to bring into being in their lives and their community the radical equalising brought about by the gift of the Spirit. Their attempt to reframe their financial dealings is reminiscent of the radical financial model of the concept of Jubilee, with wealth being redistributed to ensure that none are left in need. And the question for us, I think, then, is what does Jubilee look like in our time, in our community and in our country? And what are we called to do to be part of bringing that into being? The government decision to impose a windfall tax on the profits of utility companies is surely a step in the right direction. But I find myself wondering what a real Jubilee would look like in our time, where the economic structures of our society were weighted to benefit the poor, to ensure that no one goes hungry, to create a country where food banks are unnecessary and where the refugees are made welcome. It is simply inhuman. And ungodly to have a society where so many people are forced into spirals of debt to survive, and where people are choosing between heat and food. Just last week, the boss of the energy company Eon predicted that 40% of its customers will be in fuel poverty by this autumn. Fuel poverty is usually defined as spending more than 10% of your household income on heating your home. To quote Tim Jones again, Jubilee is about writing the injustices created by an unjust system. God's demand for social justice throughout the Bible means it should not stop there, but the system itself should be changed. So injustice is not created in the first place. So yes, let's celebrate Jubilee. But let's do so By working to bring about the good news to the poor, release to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free that Jesus speaks of in his commissioning moment in the synagogue at Nazareth. And the thing is, none of this is rocket science. This isn't some pipe dream for which we pray and then leave it to God. We can change this. We can change it by who we vote for when we get a chance to vote again but not only that bloomsbury is highly involved in the partnerships which are working to bring about the values of jubilee in our world in our city and in our communities and if you want to take seriously the anointing of pentecost to proclaim the year of the lord's favor then there are a myriad of options for you to be part of through our church. Let me just tell you about a few of them. You might choose to become involved in welcoming the stranger by joining Jean and I in our West End Welcome Group, which has already helped in housing two refugee families. You might choose to become involved in bringing release to captives by joining our team doing training with the Welcome Directory so that we can be a community that welcomes people who have been discharged from prison. You might choose to join the London Prison Ministry through Churches Together in Westminster and do some prison visiting yourself. You might choose to become involved in working against fuel poverty, by joining our Just Transition team through London Citizens, which I co-chair. We would love to have you be part of that campaign. We are campaigning for 100,000 London homes to be upgraded in their insulation and heating, prioritising those who are in fuel poverty. And we are also campaigning for the creation of 60,000 new green jobs paying the London living wage. So that as a city, as we tackle climate change and work towards a carbon neutral London, we do so in ways that is prioritising those most at need and most at risk. You might choose to become involved in our campaigning for the real living wage which this year is focusing on those who work in the health and social care sector, so that people who care for others are not forced to live in poverty. Some of you were with us down at Parliament Square for a big campaign about that a few weeks ago. That is an ongoing campaign. I can tell you more about it. You might choose to become involved in our anti-racism group here at Bloomsbury, addressing the evil legacy of the transatlantic slave trade and challenging the barriers of race and ethnicity that continue to divide our society. It was just wonderful to see this building full a couple of weeks ago of people who were here to see the premiere of the new documentary about the transatlantic slave trade and church complicity in this. And wonderful news, friends, in October this year, we're going to be hosting the inaugural meeting of a new ecumenical centre for justice and reconciliation. And you can all come and be part of that too. Talk to me if you want to get more involved in working against racism through our church. You might choose to become part of our London Citizens team, learning the skills of community organising so that through partnerships with others, churches, mosques, synagogues, schools, universities, all in our location in the area of the West End, through partnership with them, we can bring the world as it is one step closer to the world as it should be. I would love to have more of you do some training in London Citizens and be part of that wonderful partnership. But here's the thing. All of these will take time. They take effort. I know because I've got my finger in all of these pies and they do take time and we can't all do all of them. And I represent you in them and it's a privilege of my ministry to do so. Those of you who have lives and jobs and commitments will have to pick and choose, I'm sure. It involves turning up at meetings, going on training, maybe taking time out of work occasionally. It's not rocket science, but there are no shortcuts either. And I am passionate about the possibilities before us as a church over the next few years. I am passionate about how much we are already doing. And if you're interested in becoming involved in any of these areas, drop me a line, book a conversation with me, I'll come and see you. You can come and see me, we will have coffee together. I would be delighted to explore with you how God is leading you to be part of our calling to bring good news to a hurting world. And so this Jubilee Pentecost, I want us to celebrate. Let us celebrate the community we are called to be. We are a spirit anointed people called to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, called to live into being the year of Jubilee.
2: Well, amidst the general mood of rejoicing everywhere uh, today, including for the life and the faithful witness of the Queen, is also the birthday of the church in Pentecost. Uh, But we should also recall the earlier definitions of Jubilee that we've learned about this morning, including anointing for service and of bringing good news to the marginalized and the oppressed. And so we pray. Lord, we share a tarnished world, a world overwhelmed and disfigured by bloodshed, hate, and violence. We remember again the conflict in the Ukraine which has drawn many nations into the perimeters of war. We think of the Yemen and of other atrocities which have been highlighted recently, including the Texas shootings. But There are countless other incidents of global violence and skirmishes that go unreported and unrecorded on a daily basis. In the words of the prophet Hosea, we read, I shall break the bow, the sword, and banish all warfare. I will let the people sleep secure. God of peace, we yearn for that promised security, praying that thou wilt listen to these, the deepest cries of our hearts and bring to an aching, deeply hurting world your sovereign word of peace. Let us remember too those suffering bereavement, for the many families struggling with the consequences of unemployment and for those burdened by debt and poverty. For the sick in mind or body, the hospitalised, and those receiving palliative care. We think of the lonely, the isolated, the destitute, many of these on our doorsteps, and for those who feel bruised emotionally. Loving God, for as Christ who walked the way of suffering and of love, Hold those who cling to the very edges of life in your tender love and care. And finally, let us rejoice now on this Pentecost Sunday, which marks the completion of the whole narrative of salvation, the birthday of the church and the celebration of the Holy Spirit's coming among us. Living Lord, breathe your grace into our lives and strengthen our hearts by your anointing. Help us to cherish, especially, those seven fruits of the spirit, which we can glean from the book of Galatians chapter five. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, and faithfulness. God of immeasurable love, be pleased to hear these our prayers. Amen. So may the God of love
1: give us a new hope. May the Son of hope give us a new faith, and may the Spirit of faith give us a new love. So go in love, faith, and hope. And may the blessing of God rest with us all. Amen.